Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith and the science and practice of medicine. And the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our guest will be philosophy professor, Dr. Peter Colosi. He's going to help us learn how to talk to people who disagree with us about moral issues and our health. I can't imagine talking to anyone that disagrees with us. <laughs> Maybe it could happen in theory. Before we get to uh, Dr. Colosi, let's look at some interesting news items. You know, trying to pick some news items that have something to do with uh, this topic, I thought we'd look at where there's a divergence of opinion and views of one major medical item, that is um, or so-called medical item, abortion, and another one about um, how physicians look at things politically. So first, the political thing. This comes from an article in the New York Times published in late 2016 entitled, Your Surgeon is Probably a Republican, Your Psychiatrist is Probably a Democrat. <laughs> it's just the only th question about this is how many people we offend on which topic, right? <laughs> We can't do that, Chris. We're, we're doctors. We don't offend anybody. But we're going to learn to right. talk to people who disagree with us next, so it'll be fine. Exactly. And what was startling here is there's a huge gap between uh, what percentage of people consider themselves Republicans and what percentage Democrat based on their specialty. Mm. For instance, there's one specialty where two-thirds, 67 percent, are registered Republicans. And this study was done uh, by looking at voter records and cross-referencing it with uh, physicians. So it's a very objective study with a, a, a lot of data. Then there's another specialty where only 23% or one-third the amount of this other group identify as Republicans. And as a hint, this lowest rate one was our guest on our last show. <laughs> so infectious disease physicians, only 23% identify as Republicans, and whereas 77% uh, would identify as Democrats. And sort of right in the middle, all doctors, about 46%, my own specialty of OBGYN, about 47% or roughly half would say blue versus red, interestingly. Or actually red versus blue. True. So a few more blues than red there, whereas I'm in dermatology, just the exact opposite, 53% red, 47% blue. And then the most red... Like the article from the New York Times said, surgery. At 67%. At 67%. So uh, it's uh, very interesting. But in the article, they talk about how when you're in medical training, we go through rotations, you know, three to six weeks on a certain specialty. And you really sense that on different specialties, there's a very different culture. Yeah, interestingly, and certainly we've talked to medical students. We've lived it as medical students ourselves. Certain personality types are favored in one specialty, maybe, or specialty yes. rotation. Other students of a different personality ilk might feel at home or less at home uh, in another specialty, interestingly. And certainly our personalities probably translate or reflect maybe what our inherent political views would be, wouldn't they? Oh, they certainly can. And so if we look here, the, the top four in terms of the most Democrats, and these are ones that have over 60% identify as Democrats where they've registered, would be geriatrics, pediatrics. So that's interesting, both ends of the life spectrum, <laughs> psychiatry and infectious disease. Whereas the four diseases that register the most Republican, and these are all over 60% also, except in the other direction, would be ear, nose, and throat specialists, urologists, anesthesiologists, and surgeons. You know, I was looking at that with infectious disease, thinking, well, they tend to be employed by large health systems, so maybe they would favor a big active government, so they would be less conservative. Well, maybe that works. But then when you try that on some of the other specialties, like emergency medicine, they tend to be employed by large health systems. It breaks down. So it's really fascinating. It is. I was thinking one thing possibly with infectious disease is that uh, one of the main diseases it has treated over the last 20 or 30 years has been probably the most politicized disease HIV. of all times, HIV. Absolutely. So that may play a role. I don't know. The article didn't talk about that. Uh, the other thing in looking at different viewpoints was what is the most recent views of Americans on abortion? And this is from the Pew Forum uh, out of the Pew Research Center in September of 2018. 
a study. And so they broke down uh, American views into four categories. They think that abortion should be always legal, mostly legal, mostly illegal, or never legal. And what were the findings? Well, exactly one quarter of people thought abortion should be always legal. There should be no restrictions at all. On the other end of the spectrum, 15% thought abortion should be never legal. And then you have the squishy middle where a third of people, 34%, thought it should be mostly legal, 22% mostly illegal. You know, the first thing I, I think when I see that is I'm reminded whenever we're reading survey data as data consumers, we always need to know what the question was, don't we? Very often in the news, we'll hear survey information and People make their living writing surveys, and one little word, one little comma, and one direction or the other can change the way someone might answer a it, survey. It definitely can. Well, in this same group, they broke it down by uh, religious affiliation. And the group, and then they just broke the answers into two, mostly or always illegal or mostly or always legal. And the uh, group that thought abortion should be illegal the most, 61% of the time, were white evangelical Protestants. Group that thought it should be legal the most at 74% were those who are unaffiliated with any religion. Surprisingly, Catholics were in the middle. 51% thought it should be mostly legal, which is shocking considering what the you know, church teaching is for only a couple thousand years. And then education uh, also, not what I would think because those who are less educated probably had less embryology <laughs> than those of us who had more education. But those who didn't f finish high school, 52% think it should be mostly illegal. But if you have some college education, 60% of people think it should be typically legal. And then finally, if you graduated college or had more, 71% think it should be mostly or always legal. So the more education, the more people are willing to kill babies in the womb. At least answer that on the survey, right? <laughs> yes, or at least answer that on the survey. And then uh, trying to come up with uh, a trivia question related to this, I came up with this from the Gallup organization that's been polling people for decades. And since 1947, they've been polling people. And Chris talked about wording for a question. Well, I do have the precise wording that's been used now for over 70 years on this particular question. And it's this. When a person has a disease that cannot be cured, do you think doctors should be allowed by law to end the patient's life by some painless means if the patient and his or her family request it? So it's basically the euthanasia question and painless euthanasia. So my question to you is, what percentage of Americans answered yes the first time in 1947, and what percentage answered most recently when it was asked in 2018? Tom, we can't wait to hear the answer to that one. And you will, but you'll have to be patient. We'll be back with our interview after the break on Dr. Doctor. Well, you're back with us on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And our topic this segment is charity and clarity, how to talk about hot button topics with people you disagree with. Our guest is Dr. Peter Colosi. Peter's an assistant professor of philosophy at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. He's an instructor at the Catholic Medical Association Medical Student Boot Camp. We'll have to talk about that individually sometime. He's a former professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville and St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia. Peter, thank you for joining us on Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Pete, I'd like to start with a quote from my favorite deceased author, because I think it has great relevance here. And almost exactly 99 years ago, uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He says the, that the curtness, the shortness of the Ten Commandments is evidence, not of the gloom and narrowness of religion, but on the contrary of its liberality and humanity. It's shorter to state the things forbidden than the things permitted precisely because most things are permitted and only a few things are forbidden. So he wrote this in a newspaper in 1920. And this brings up two important topics for us to consider when we discuss important things like abortion or euthanasia. And those two things are religion and forbidden. 
So let's start with religion. I've listened to some of your other interviews, and you've said that many modern Western people think that the word religion is kind of a trigger word that brings up the immediate idea of being irrational or non-rational. How did we get to this point? Hmm, That's a good question. Uh, One answer to that question, I think, might be is that many people, at least in the West, like Europe and America, maybe haven't experienced genuine religion. I think it's probably three generations in Europe and maybe two generations now in America where, like, the children of parents now, their parents didn't go to church, and now these kids also didn't go to church. And so, I mean, of course, a lot of people still do, but there's a wide, big percentage of people who haven't. And so one reason might be is just not having a genuine religious experience, especially in childhood, where it really becomes awakened. And so if all they know is that religion forbids some things, then it seems irrational because, and this is a positive thing about people of our day and age, which I like, People today, even Catholics, wouldn't say anymore, oh, well, because Father said so. People want want reasons. They want to understand why. They want to be convinced. I find, especially with college students, that if you just start to engage them with reasons, they really lean forward um, and listen. But if they just hear forbidden and that's it, then they associate that with irrational because, A, it doesn't jive with their experience, and B, you haven't given them a reason yet. Well, you know, Pete, um, I had a patient who self-referred away from me earlier this week, and I called her to ask about it, and she said, well, we wanted to get a non-religious opinion, and (laughs) as I hear you describe that, I think she thought I was forbidden to give her a good scientific opinion, that she wanted to get uh, a better opinion and better meant by definition from someone who she perceived as not religious. Uh, I've been mm-hmm. criticized for my faith in a lot of ways, but that was a that was a first one for me. But it does speak mm-hmm. to this idea that people will default to if you're religious, you're somehow non-rational. Right. Yeah. And they won't even. Some of them won't even give a listen. They can't distinguish those two. Well, is there mm-hmm. a benefit? even for secular societies, to have religious believers have a place in the public square? Yeah. I think, um, in fact, some big big um, thinkers in Europe, like um, Jürgen Habermas, who's a very famous uh, sociologist and philosopher over there, a German atheist, has recently said that he thinks religious voices should be allowed to be back in the public sphere, giving their reasons for their positions to help society. And the reason he said it is because he can see that Europe is like just falling apart. And he's finally grasped that it's because it's not connected to its original roots. But the only problem is, in order for religion, or let's say in the West, for Christianity, to actually have a leavening effect in the society to help the common good, it can't just be the teachings of a religion. There has to be people who are communities of faithful who are living the religion, living their Christianity in such a way that it's attractive to the surrounding people. Because the, the truth, the, the moral and the social teachings of the Catholic Church, or really of any religion, you can read about them in a book, but they didn't come from a book. They came from communities who lived them. Mm. And so we need, we need people who live the faith if we want the teachings of the faith to actually contribute to the common good of a society. Didn't um, St. Pope Paul VI say something about this in his encyclical on evangelization, written after Vatican II, in which he said, I think in the 70s, Evangelii Nuntiandi, that w- mm. the world desperately now needs witnesses who are yes. living it out. Right. He said people will listen to teachers, but they will listen more to teachers who are also witnessing. Yes. That's mm. what Pope Paul VI said. Yeah. And then and then Benedict, the way he puts it in his writings, Benedict XVI, is um, we need credible witnesses to the gospel, which means people who are living it. 
A second word and that... And people w- are attracted to that. Go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. No, a second word that Chesterton brought up was forbidden. And, and that is that if non-Catholics right. know anything about Catholic morality, they know what is forbidden. <laughs> Contraception, abortion, right. euthanasia, homosexual acts, and peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. Well, except for the last <laughs> one. But there, there's, there's a lot of things that are forbidden. So what what's right. our Catholic marketing problem? Why do people... Is it just because it's easier to remember those things instead of all the great positive things there are? Well, I think, how do I want to put this? Well, one thing that I found very beautiful in Pope Francis's first um, letter, apostolic letter called The Joy of the Gospel, he makes the point in there that most people, when they convert to Christianity and change their moral life, it's not from reading a moral handbook. It's from meeting a person, the person of Jesus Christ, or meeting somebody, like we were just saying a minute ago, who... um, who introduces them to Jesus. Um, Like the woman at the well, she met Jesus by surprise, and that changed her whole life, including her moral life. So one thing we need to do is introduce people to the person of Jesus Christ and to the sacraments. But then, but some people do convert the other way around. And there, I'm reminded of a passage in, um, I think it's Dignitas Personae, or maybe Donum Vitae, where it says that um, behind every no, there's a great yes. And that gets back to the idea, it means behind every forbidden thing, like the ones you just listed, there's a great yes to the dignity of the human person. And so, yes, you are right that we, our failure has been that people aren't catechized. People, the reasons behind the teachings are so beautiful. They're so beautiful. And when you share them in the right way, what you have to do is share the reasons behind the teachings in such a way that it inspires someone because they themselves can see the goodness of the teaching for their own happiness to want to try to live according to it. And that's what we have to do. That that makes a lot of sense to me because most Catholics only remember the things that are forbidden because that's the shortcut to do well on the test. Uh, right. But, and, and we haven't been taught. I mean, you know, being catechized no. in the 70s, I wasn't taught anything about the re- no. what we were saying yes to. Well, it's been said that most Catholics were walking around with an eighth grade education in Catholicism. I, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an adult uh, convert. My in-laws, who are probably listening, uh, were cradle Catholics. <laughs> and uh, when I converted... My father-in-law used to say, God save us from converts, you know. (laughs) Um, But all I wanted to do was ask him questions. Well, you're this, you're this, why do you do this? The catechism says this. But I think the reality is our, our, our converted brothers and sisters are often on fire because they've had good catechesis, whereas maybe others have lost that along the way somewhere. So really, the always the the things we're saying yes to are to bring us joy to our life and joy is really that thing we all seek for its own sake isn't it yes 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 we're looking for happiness and and those forbidden things if you go down those paths they won't bring you happiness you know i love one of augustine's definitions of sin which i heard from a historian of all people and it was Sin is loving something that won't make you happy. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Well, here's another little tidbit from G.K. Chesterton, and this is getting into the relationship I'd like to understand better from your perspective between law and culture. Mm -hmm. He wrote that if Mm -hmm. men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they shall be governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. What do you Mm -hmm. think that means, and how does law and culture intersect? Well, I will say that Chesterton actually got that from Plato and Aristotle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) Plato says it in the Republic, and Aristotle says it in the Nicomachean Ethics, which is basically that, you know, Aristotle said, this is so foreign to our ears, that the most important character trait of a politician and a legislator is that they be virtuous. They have to be virtuous to be legislators. And yet we have modern legislators arguing that that shouldn't be part of the equation at all. Right. Aristotle said that was the most important thing. And and the reason is because the law, 
Now, the, when, Arist- when Aristotle talks about the common good and helping citizens to flourish in the common good and helping everyone to become virtuous, um, he has a lot of things that help us to become virtuous. So law is only one of them. But he does say that the law habituates the citizens, meaning one way to put it in our day and age is if something's legal, people just tend to think it's also right. If it's legal, it's morally right. Now, that's not always true. As And Martin Luther King also, Jr., he in, the, um, in his letter from a Birmingham jail makes this mm. point very well, the difference between just and unjust laws. But, but the law is actually, according to Aristotle, it's supposed to be one of the things that helps us grow in virtue. And that's why legislators are supposed to be men and women of virtue, because they're, when they're making positive laws, the laws in the books, they're always supposed to have one eye on the natural law to make sure the positive laws don't violate the natural laws. And that becomes a help um, to create a common good. So, um, so how do you respond to the people who say, come on, Pete, you can't legislate morality? That's sort of a silly thing to say. I would almost say every <laughs> single law that exists Ex- is legislating. Exactly. Or at least, at, least it, yeah. uh, at least it legislates uh, virtue anyway. I mean, it's funny. A law, by definition, I'm no lawyer, would be forbidding something. So you could argue by forbidding things, we increase in virtue. Or requiring things. Some laws require things. True, true. But laws, I mean, don't... Like if you go to jail for stealing or if you go to jail for killing or if you go to jail for this, that, or the other thing, um, it's because we think those things are immoral mm. that we make those laws. Yes. Um, so we do legislate um, based on morality. The question is getting morality right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so do you think that our culture right now is influencing law, whereas the view of Aristotle and Plato was that law should influence culture? Right. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to answer that other point. So Aristotle and Plato both said that unless you have citizens who are virtuous, if you have citizens who aren't virtuous, you're going to need tons and tons of law because uh, sure. it's going to be crazy. But if people are virtuous and have what Aristotle would call true friendship with each other, you won't need at least to enforce the laws because everyone will be living according to them. So that's where Chesterton um, got that idea. And And then, yes, the culture... You know, Pope Benedict talked about what he called um, the tyranny of relativism or the dictatorship of relativism. Yes, yes. And we've, we've, we've entered that. So in other words, for, for a number of decades, we just had relativism where people thought there was no objective moral law above us all, that it's just live and let live. And, and you might wonder, well, how can live and let live lead to tyranny? But it does. And the reason is because um, if there's no true moral law above us all that we all have to look to and obey, if that doesn't exist, then the only principle left to organize society is power. Yes. Who has the power? power. And and that's why relativism eventually turns into tyranny. Um, And so what you have now is this bizarre situation in our culture with People not even listening to each other, like on the TV shows, they just sort of bark at each other, <laughs> and they think and they think that whatever we can, we can talk about some of them euthanasia or abortion or um, it's they're pretending that those things are a law above us that if you don't obey if you don't agree with euthanasia you're going to jail or if you're a doctor and you won't participate in abortion how dare you be so bad you don't get your license to practice medicine. Mm. So they've, they've they've taken the natural law concept and put the opposite of the natural law in there. The unnatural said, law. Hey, this, yeah, <laughs> obey this like it's the natural law or else you're in big trouble. And that's where, that's relativism turning into tyranny. So Pete, why do so many people think that, like my patient who fired me, that religious mm-hmm. arguments are really out of bounds and and, and can't be used why are they like that, and how do we get beyond that? I suppose there it's, um, I think the main thing would be, like some people, like uh, um, I think Tom said at the beginning, this word trigger. If you, if you 
make it clear at the beginning that you are religious, that can just shut some people down, which is too bad because, you know, for all of human history, everybody, including religious people, have been allowed to participate in discussions about public life. So, so I'm not sure how it got to that point where people just shut down. Some people shut down when they hear somebody is religious. Maybe this strange idea of freedom as license, they feel threatened by religion. But, but the cure to it, I think, is A, for us as best as possible to be loving and joyful with people. But then also there's that Bible verse that St. Peter has, be ready to give a reason for the hope of his within you. And, And there I think we have to be able to explain reasons, and it's tough to figure out how to do it with each individual person, but it can even just be some little thing that makes them do a double take. Pete, we need to take a break right now. You're making some excellent points, but we want to dive into some other things after this break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with more conversation with Dr. Pete Colosi on how to uh, discuss difficult moral topics with people who disagree with us. Before we get into your charity and clarity um, method, we have one question that you uh, intrigued me with. And you said earlier in the show, talking about using religious arguments, that um, the bishops of the United States with the HHS contraception mandate argued it from a religious perspective, and you think that was a fumbled opportunity. What, what do you mean by that? Right, and I can, and actually one little plug for a book, a uh, recent book by Janet Smith called um, Why, Contra- Why Humane Vitae is Still Right. It just came out, and I have a chapter in there that explains what I'm about to say in greater depth. Excellent. But, um, but, but basically, yes, with the HHS mandate, which was a health and human services uh, threw something into Obamacare that was going to cause Catholic institutions to have to fund contraception and sterilization um, in their health insurance plans. And the bishops, which was great, they fought against it, but they decided to take the tack of whenever they were questioned, all they said was, this is a question about religious freedom. And when a reporter, and I thought this this was a great question, I think the reporters here, many times they're not, they're not so honest, but I think this was a genuinely honest question. They would occasionally ask, well, what do you guys actually think about contraception? And the bishops had decided ahead of time that whenever that question came up, they would say, don't ask us that. This isn't about that. This is about mm. religious freedom. And the reason that's a fumble is because it reinforces the notion that contraception is a irrational or kooky even religious idea. And if you can't even explain it, then it must be kooky. Right. So, so, so what they should have done in my humble opinion is um, have been prepared depending on the setting, like we were saying before the break, if it's on CNN or something with one or two well-prepared sound bites that could at least get an honest reporter or a curious person watching the television to at least do a double take and say, oh, I never thought of that. Um, but, but they just stiff-armed the question, which, which sort of tacitly enforces the notion that it's a kooky religious idea. Sort of like, I make an analogy in the thing, and I don't want to be unkind to Jehovah's Witnesses, I was just trying to make an analogy, but they don't do blood transfusions. Right. And a lot of people might think, okay, that's a quirk in their religion, and they can do it. But the bishops made contraception seem like that. But contraception is so harmful to marriage and health and family and society. And to just stiff-arm it makes, makes the person who thinks it's weird think you think it is too. And it really feels like a a great missed opportunity to speak to something yeah. uh, uh, from yeah. the national audience. The whole audience. world had their ears perked up. Um, what does the church think about contraception? And they stiff-armed it. And, and, and what's interesting, what's different about 1968 and 
2012, which is when the HHS thing was going on, was that in 1968, yes, there were many priests and bishops who dissented, and that was terrible, but cutting them a little bit of a break, I don't think we knew how to explain it so well like we do now. Mm. And, and, and so all that stuff should have been, should have been uh, marshaled in all the different opportunities during that year, and it, and it wasn't. That is a beautiful explanation, and I think I'm going to uh, send a letter of recommendation to the USCCB to get you on their advisory panel, Pete. <laughs> Not that they'll listen <laughs> they have to a, it. They have a, uh, since then, they did make a nice um, page on their website about it, but the problem is no Catholics or very few go to that. So right. it, needs to be, it needs to be brought into at the parish level now. They need to have a little more courage to not only preach from the pulpit, but teach. And I know there's an essential difference between preaching and teaching, but the thing is, if people are in church every Sunday, the ones who are there, they're not, that's where they are. So there's got to be a little bit of teaching brought into homilies to gradually bring about these sort of minorities of, of people who understand the goodness of the, of the teachings, um, I would recommend. And that book by Janet, I have a lot of footnotes in there with tons of references from every angle, from psychology, from health, from how to live it practically. There's so many resources out there that can be drawn on to explain it to people. Well, now that you've been talking about explaining, you have to explain things to a very tough audience, college students. And you've developed a method that you call the charity and clarity method, especially when discussing mm-hmm. things other people might disagree with. What is that, Pete? Right. Um, well, I, I bring it up on the first day of class. And, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm finding that college kids, they're actually not such a tough audience. They're so open-minded. And, and I would say... They're, um, they're looking for meaning now, Ooh. in a way. And so, but anyway, so what I do on the first day is um, this chair, it, it means I tell them that, especially if it's an ethics class, that we're going to be talking about topics in this course where there will be disagreement among you. You might disagree with some of the authors. At some points, you will see what my position is, and you might disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine. And I and I remind I tell them like on TV people as I said before people just bark at each other but that's not allowed in this class <laughs> and then I say our method of our method of discussion is going to be charity and clarity and what charity means in the context of the classroom and I think this can apply to bigger discussions is it means listening to another person charity means listening to another person in this context and by listening um, I mean that when someone's talking, especially someone who disagrees with you, you're so attentive to what they're saying and their reasons for holding it that you can then, when they're done speaking, repeat it back to them in such a way that they actually think you agree with them. But that doesn't happen because you're trying to trick them. It's because you interiorized their reasons so well that you can explain them back to them the way they the way they hold them, and when they hear their reasons for they, what they think is true, it sounds true, so then they think you agree with them. But you just really, that shows you accurately listened. And, and that means you, t- you, you held someone in respect. And, and I say, and so I explain that, and I say, we're going to listen to each other like that in this class. And then I sort of jokingly say, after you do that, then you can decimate their view. <laughs> but with, with, <laughs> with your reasons, but that's where the clarity part comes in. And clarity means, to put it simply, you have to make sense. Now, <laughs> if it's okay if it takes you time to make sense. You don't have to make sense right away, but you have to think and come up with reasons. So I tell them there's going to be no name calling in here. There's going to be no yelling, and but, but you have to come up with with reasons and then one of the other things i say to them after and that's sort of i can i can almost feel a little relief sometimes in the room like they kind of like that they're going to be able to get to do that and then i say um another thing that will happen inside you when you're hearing someone or an author um or me presenting this or that author because i present both sides and all the issues um I say some of the times you're going to have some pretty strong emotions bubbling up inside you because you disagree with what you're hearing. And when that happens, I tell them, 
just let those emotions be there and keep listening. Just keep listening and let the emotions be there. There's nothing you can do about them. So just let them be there and keep listening and you'll get your chance to talk. And that thing, it's okay to have those emotions and the point about listening to each other. And then, and then it's really beautiful. Sometimes it starts to happen and they listen and they, and they're so like nice to each other, you know, and try, <laughs> even when they disagree. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what the charity and clarity method is. And I think if you do that at the beginning of a semester, um, it helps a lot. You know, listening to your description, I think of my son who did a, um, a foreign language immersion trip. And he was telling me that he mm-hmm. found himself in the middle of a lot of college students who all disagreed with him on matters of religion and faith. Uh, but they weren't allowed to speak English. They were all trying to speak this new foreign language. <laughs> and, and so and in order to argue with each other, they had to help each other state their, their own points. So you had people I love on it. yeah you had wow. people on opposite sides of the argument trying to help the other person make their argument against them but that's all I could think of when I hear you describe that idea of charity of I actually want to hear what it is that you have to say we're we're missing that in our social discourse aren't we We really are we really are And, and that's where for me my my author um, Chesterton was such a great example he was thought to be the best of friends by, you know, um, by, or, um, oh, what's his name? H.G. Wells and by mm-hmm. um, uh, George, Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw. In fact, H.G. Wells yeah. said, who was an atheist, he said, if there is in heaven and I end up there, it will only be because I was G.K. Chesterton's friend. <laughs> uh, and, mm-hmm. and Chesterton yeah. also said about his younger brother, Cecil, that after Cecil was born, he said, we always argued but never quarreled. In other words, it was always mm-hmm. about the ideas and never about the mm-hmm. attacking. And he, if he's ever canonized, he would be the patron saint of this kind of discourse, I so, believe. So, Pete, when you have mm-hmm. uh, students that are trying to argue on one side or the other of euthanasia or of abortion or mm-hmm. a, a very hot topic mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. what do you say to them as the goal for the debate? Uh, you know, what, what's, mm-hmm. the, what's the point? What's the end point of the debate? Now, that's a good question. So it's obviously a classroom is a different place than, say, if I was testifying at the state house or something against euthanasia. Um, so I really, I really want the students to truly feel respected, even if, obviously, I'm pro-life. So even if they are pro-choice, I want them to know I love them. Hmm. And so, um, and so, and the other thing is, they they can tell as the as the as the time goes by what I think. I, I don't really agree with the idea that the professor should completely hide and be his own view, so the students can't tell. Um, I think there's a wrong way to let them know your view and a right way to let them know your view when the time is right. But I think they do need to know what we think, and it's okay for them to know. But um, I'm, that's the classroom is not a place where I am. Um, how do I want to put this? There's no room for coercion in the classroom. Even there's no room for coercion anywhere. Like like John Paul says somewhere, the church doesn't impose; she proposes. <laughs> and um, so so on the on the it's in one of the it's in I think it's in Redemptor, I think it's in his first one. But so so but um, so. I go through the arguments on both sides, and when I'm presenting the pro-choice arguments or the pro-euthanasia ones, I do present them as best as I can as the people who hold them hold them. And when I'm doing that, the students um, try to challenge it, and I try to defend it as the person who who holds the view. Pete, can Um, we go through that after the break with euthanasia? Yeah. We'll be back in a few on Dr. Doctor. You're back with us on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio and our guest this episode with Dr. Peter Colosi talking to us about how to talk to each other about difficult topics. But before we do that, let's talk about a fun topic, and that is the medical trivia question. Yes, the topic this time is not necessarily fun, although medical trivia often is. And it actually segues in beautifully with what we're going to talk to Pete about here momentarily. And the question was... uh, 
how many Americans uh, said that uh, it would be okay under certain circumstances to let doctors uh, by law end a patient's life painfully if the patient and his uh, uh, family said it was okay. Well, in 1947, the first year they answered that question, 37% of people, over one in three Americans, said it would be okay. By 2018, uh, just within the last few months, 72% of people, so it doubled roughly in that period of time. And the first time it ever went over 50% of people thinking it was okay to uh, kill somebody uh, before their time uh, was the same year as Roe v. Wade, 1973. And actually for the last uh, 30 years, it has uh, oscillated between like 65 and 75% of people, Americans, thinking it's okay. Uh, Pete, does that surprise you? I'm surprised it was 37% in 1947. I thought it would have been lower. But, um, but it doesn't surprise me that it's so high now. Um, and that's uh, sort of too bad. And one of the, I think one factor, there's lots of factors, like you mentioned Roe versus Wade, but another huge factor is that um, the, the news media and the big Hollywood movies like Me Before You and Million Dollar Baby, yes. um, mm. all these big dollar movies are, are really pushing the emotional, you know, manipulating emotions, I would say, to confuse people um, about the truth of the question of, so of in, euthanasia. So in this atmosphere, show us with your charity and clarity method, how do we talk to friends, family, colleagues who think that euthanasia is a positive good? Right. One thing is to go through reasons, and we can talk about some of them now. And then just from be what we were saying before the break, one of the things in the class that I do um, is after going through the reasons on both sides, they have to write an essay at the end of the semester in class, but they get to have a prep sheet with them. And I ask them in one part of their essay to give the strongest reasons they can come up with for euthanasia or abortion, and then the strongest they can come up with against it. And then in their conclusion, they have to say what they think and why. And I'm always so impressed. Like I'm reading the first half and I'm like, oh, this kid's pro-choice. And then I'm reading the second half and I'm like, oh, no, this kid's pro-life. And then I read the conclusion, and I'm like, okay, he's confused. But, <laughs> but, uh, or, 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 he's, or, he's, or he's less clear than he was at the beginning, which is good, but, but when, at the beginning of the class. But, yes. this, but the thing is, I'm so impressed with young people that they can do that. In other words, I'd, I'd rather talk to a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old than somebody who's older and set in their position, because there's a certain open, I'm always so impressed that they're able to articulate the strongest argument. They almost think it's fun to give the, the strongest arguments on both sides before they say what they think. And there's so many people who can't do that anymore. I mean, um, it's interesting if both parties are completely unwilling to even consider changing their position, it's sort of a waste right. of a discussion time, isn't it? It is. In fact, now you just reminded me, that's another thing I say in the Charity and Clarity intro is that I say maybe it doesn't happen so often that someone does a whole 180, but you can always learn something from someone who disagrees with you. Mm. Um, we can too, by the way, on the pro-life side, when you really listen to some of the reasons that people have for being in favor of abortion, they're usually rooted in some human experience. Yes. And that being attentive to that is so important. Um, so, yeah, so... So for, for the question of, of, of euthanasia, um, um, there's a whole different, um, a whole set of reasons. And I will say, you said, how about with your relatives and things like this? A classroom is a setting that is built for making this more possible than these um, occasional encounters. But even in the occasional encounters, I think you can do... Um, you can do some things. One of the things that I like to do at the beginning of the euthanasia thing, and I don't know if we'll have enough time to go through a lot of the reasons, but I, I, I show them Hippocratic Oath because in there, Hippocrates, on the section on euthanasia, he says he will never do euthanasia, and he also says he will never even make a suggestion to a sick person that they consider euthanasia. And I find that so striking. And there's a page on the, um, 
on the PBS website where they have the classical Hippocratic Oath, and then they have this modern, they call it <laughs> Hippocratic Oath, yes. written by Louis, Louis Lasagna. And there he says, he's a doctor from Tufts University, I think he's still alive, and he, he wrote it in 1964, 69 or something. And in there he, he has this flowery way of saying that, yes, I will kill people sometimes, but I won't play at God, which is a contradiction. And I always tell the students that, um, that um, PBS is being disingenuous there. They should not call it the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath. They should call it the lasagna oath mm. because it's, you can't be more opposite to what Hippocrates said and meant than that. It's calumny against Hippocrates to call that oath. Um, so, so um, okay, so euthanasia. Both sides claim that they are the loving and compassionate ones. One of the things that I bring up is that since one side says you can never kill people and the other side says you can kill people, they must have two different meanings of love and compassion. Good. And there I say, if you think about the essence of love, lots of things have opposites, more than one. Love has many opposites. Three of them are hatred is the most obvious opposite to love. I don't think people who are euthanizing their relatives hate their guts. Use is an opposite to love, like what Carol Bottillo writes about in Love and Responsibility, using people. And I don't think that's typically the opposite to love that euthanasia is. But a third opposite to love, and this one really hits the students, is um, abandonment or ignoring somebody. And I ask them, if, if there's someone who's supposed to love you like a relative, it's a horrible question, but would you rather have them hate you or ignore you? And most people say, I'd rather have them hate me because at least they're paying attention to me. <laughs> and almost, it's almost like you have to love someone to hate them in a way. <laughs> but if you're totally ignored by somebody, that's harder because they're almost pretending you don't exist. And, 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 and when someone is sick, when someone is hurt, when someone is very sick, that's when they are the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That's when they need to be surrounded by that love that only family and friends can give. And I think euthanasia is the opposite to love and abandonment, uh, love and compassion in the sense of not hate or use, but in the sense of abandonment. I think it is giving up on someone when they are most vulnerable, which is right when they need to be surrounded by the love and the handholding, not kill them. Um, and and that um, is and, and so and so here's I'll just throw out a few out and you guys want if you guys want to talk well, about it. Well, uh, what I'd one. like to ask is what would be the response, the best response of a pro euthanasia person to that vulnerability abandonment argument? Well, one thing that they say is that um, that it's actually they might not use the word love, they might use the word respect to if they ask you to kill them the patient and you don't do it then they say you're not respecting their autonomy and their freedom and who are you to um you know not give them what they want as long as they have um as long as they have thought it through and there's two answers you can give to that one of them is i don't think it's actually true that legalizing euthanasia makes people more free. I think it makes them less free. And other people have made this point also. And what I mean by, and Wesley Smith, Smith's book, um, Forced Exit, brings this out very well. If you, if euthanasia is off the table as a legal option, then you don't fear that somebody wants you to kill yourself. But if euthanasia is on the table mm. as a legal option, then a thought is going to enter your head maybe I should do this. Maybe I'm a burden. Maybe people don't want me around. Maybe I'm using up resources. So I, all those thoughts are going to pop into someone's head if, if euthanasia is a legal option. And those thoughts are antithetical to freedom because they are coercive. But if you, because you're going to feel pressured to do it. But if it's not an option, then you know, okay, nobody wants to kill me. Not my doctor, not my family. <laughs> and And so... It's it's not an increase um, in freedom. I would say it's a decrease in freedom. You know, it's interesting. You make great content um, points on this particular item. How about some form points on this? How do we have that discussion 
without it escalating to anger, to name-calling, to the opposite of charity. Mm-hmm. And we have just over a minute mm-hmm. for that answer. Well, it's hard. I, I would say pray ahead of time. <laughs> Enter into a conversation with someone. And then at some point, you know, it is the humble thing to maybe sometimes we have to let the person yell at us and not fight back mm-hmm. and maybe wait for another time. And that witness of turning the other cheek or being still loving to them maybe is all we can do in that moment. Wow, that's a great um, point. Yeah. That's our charity so, is uh, be willing willing to suffer. Or, or you'd be a punching bag, right. a verbal punching bag. Yeah, yeah, yep. Sometimes that is something that can even help us to grow in, in humility and, and love for the person. I um, think we'd like to uh, explore more topics with you on uh, future shows because uh, this is very uh, enlightening because someone like you who has heard the arguments both ways from people who are not emotionally charged, I think this will be great fodder for our listeners. Well, so, I, uh, Tom, I'd like to have uh, Pete come to the next Thanksgiving dinner at my house. If oh, that's sure. Possible, I think that <laughs> so I'll come for dessert. You're gonna, you're, you're, I'll pray for you, but you got to handle that yourself. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Pete Colosi, for being with us, and thank, thank you, you for guys. all our listeners to being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing how to talk about law and morality with Nick Nikas, the director of Bioethics Defense Fund. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app.